This is The Usable Past, a podcast about past stories informing the present, hosted by Marie Nahikian. Welcome to The Usable Past. Our windows framed Underhill Avenue. We could see everything. Cars lost tires and hubcaps. And if I had let folks know that the Jeep Cherokee that disappeared from Lincoln and Underhill was one that I drove for work sometimes, it would still be there. We heard shots fired. We celebrated Labor Day eating roadie, jerk. Our son was invited to dance in the children's parade, a prelude to Brooklyn's famous West Indian Day parade that ended under our windows after turning off of Eastern Parkway and making its way down Underhill Avenue. Across from our garages were three-story row house buildings. First floors were stores or retail, and there were walk-ups, railroad apartments on the floors above. Since the early 90s, daily commerce centered on a bodega opened by Muhammad, an immigrant from Yemen, we finally fondly named it the uh, the Yuck Store, until it finally got a formal name sign that said Saba. They had daily prayer, stopped selling alcohol, always sold Lucy's, and fed a lot of hungry people. Muhammad's family lived upstairs. The store is now owned and managed by children born there. The other main traders move product on the sidewalks from Washington Ave to Underhill, sometimes traveling through the basements and across the roofs to meet the regular bridge and tunnel customers. By 2020, there was a lot of change. There was a beauty shop, then a vacant forever space, and then Bar Sapia, where everyone knew your name. It opened and closed slammed with the gentrificated real estate values. One storefront sold everything, but fronted with pizza slices and finally became an apartment. The laundromat on the corner had a fire and still sits empty, now surrounded by a millennial-induced fence of murals. A dry cleaner, owned by our best friend on the block, Carl, closed after he passed, and briefly reopened as Carl's Place, a bar and restaurant. Small minority Brooklyn business owners, all of them. In 2006, we welcomed Cheryl's Global Soul, a sit-down restaurant. In 2020, there was more change. COVID arrived, the pandemic in New York City, Everything closed, even Cheryl's, reopening finally with carryout only. A new moment on the block began at 7 p.m. every night when the windows opened, neighbors waved across Underhill Avenue, and in sheer gratitude for being alive, made noise.
just a little piece of added information. Our interview with Cheryl was done in the restaurant, Cheryl's Global Soul, and there was a lot of noise outside from construction in the street and even some customers who came in and out for carryout. So we apologize for the noise. And just so everyone knows, it's now 2021, and Cheryl's really needs your business as well. usable past. We're on Underhill Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, and boy are we excited to be in Cheryl's Global Soul. And in the middle of uh, August, in the year of the pandemic, in the year of COVID-19, Cheryl is still here, which is like a small miracle. Thank God. So, welcome Cheryl Smith. And um, welcome to my uh, cohort, traveler in uh, trouble and progress, PJ Ryan. <laughs> Hello. Hello. And I, I have to footnote, everyone should know that PJ has his own, his very own podcast called Highly Melanated and the Dear You Project and others in development. Correct. Correct. He's also an actor. Oh, beautiful. Now, Cheryl is an entrepreneur, an African-American woman, sole owner of Cheryl's Global Soul. And one of my favorite stories about Cheryl was that my son was graduating from high school. And this was um, a number of years ago, actually. And um, we had lunch in Cheryl's garden behind Cheryl's Global Soul on Underhill Avenue in Brooklyn. And... My mother-in-law was here from Hartford, Connecticut, as was her sister and the grandfather and the cousins. And Madeline Seymour just went absolutely wacko when she realized that Cheryl was a star. I saw her on that chef show. So it's, um, but, but you hadn't done a restaurant before then. No, this is my first. I did, uh, when I was chefing and sous-chefing around New York, um, I was also developing a cooking show, and that's why she probably saw me, because I ended up on the Food Network for uh, quite a few years doing, being the guest talent on a lot of cooking shows. So, so you must have been one of the early African-American chefs. I really was. Well, I think there were only like a few Curtis Akins and a... Maybe one other. I mean, but it was all the, so the early days of Food Network. Right. That's what I was, I was just thinking about. So I need to step back for two seconds because I need to set the, uh, set the stage here. The building we're sitting in um, was, a, was a dry cleaners at one point, owned by uh, a wonderful Jamaican man. Um, Carl. Carl, who was my heart and soul, and the first person I met when we moved to Eastern Parkway in Underhill in 1991. Um, the morning after we had moved in, we discovered we had no gas, and we came out, I came out looking for coffee. And Carl said, go to Washington Ave, 
And that's when we discovered that we had left the blinkers on in the car and the battery was dead and I was just falling apart. I had this new baby. I was in this place called Brooklyn and I was like, oh my God. And Carl became my best friend to the point that, and that's what this street has been about. I mean, even as our son grew up, went to school, if we couldn't make it home in, in time, Carl would say, send him to the cleaners, and Chafin would hang out in the cleaners and play dominoes with the brothers in the back. (laughs) And they would always be told that they had to watch their mouth when Chafin was here after school. (laughs) So Carl passed away, broke our hearts. Mm -hmm. And then his, um, his betrothed, his wife, Primrose, came in and opened a place very briefly called Carl's Place. A restaurant, yeah. A restaurant. And it didn't last very long because, tell us, Cheryl, running a restaurant is hard work. I, it's The thing, simple thing is people don't realize that it's not enough to say, oh, I love to cook, so I'm going to open a restaurant. There's so much you have to learn to prepare for that because on any given day, you have to know how every facet of the restaurant works. That's why I was doing uh, the work uh, of chefing all over Manhattan and, and sous chefing because I really need, I wanted to have my own place and I really needed to know how everything worked. So that was what year? 1990? No. Not, two, actually, when I started working, um, I can't even remember now, it was like in the. In, in the 90s, mid-90s. Right. And then, um, I mean, I opened up Cheryl's in 2006. So before that, before I even went to kitchens, I was working. Uh, I had started my own little catering company simply because all my friends loved my food and kept raving about it and, and would uh, suggest to friends, oh, you should try our food. And so I started this little catering gig out of my own home that, you know, turned into uh, almost too big for my, my home. I was yeah. like, my living room was taken over with cooking racks and, and equipment. And then I was like, oh, I need, to, I need to look for a place. So I started looking for a spot. And then I quickly realized that I don't know enough about this. That it's not just about securing a space and a lease. Like, there, you know, the restaurant business is one of the highest failure rates as, Absolutely. Bus- as, as businesses go. And you got to remember, if you opened in 2006, this is 2020. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So, I mean, I... Um, and we're I, glad the phone's ringing. That means business. <laughs> that means business, yeah. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I went... I, I literally talked my way into my first kitchen. You know, I went on interviews because I, I was like, I could go back to... I could go to school because I was not formally taught. I could go to school or I could get into a restaurant. So, I'm pretty confident about my skills, flavor profile. I'm already... People love my food. I needed to be in actual situations. So I went on interviews and then luckily on, a, on a, the guy that hired me was also threatening his cooks that he was gonna get some big black dyke in there to, <laughs> to whip them into shape. So on a dare, but also just on the uh, good feeling that he had about me because I said, look, I may not know how to work the line, but I can learn. I'm a good learner. And um, he took me up on it. and. You know, I started in Marion's on the Bowery, and um, I I can't remember what year it was, but by by the time I left, I was the executive chef and also uh, directing their catering business, which had grown 
I'd say like 90% while I was so there. So you, but you were, you were, um, you were a Brooklyn lady. Well, I lived in Brooklyn. That's I was chef all over Manhattan. I right. love Brooklyn. I, I, you know, I grew up in Connecticut. Well, first I'm transplanted from Jamaica to Connecticut, homogenized in Connecticut from I was six. Right. And then uh, I was, I, I just loved Brooklyn. We would come here for, to visit family and to visit friends that had transplanted to Brooklyn. Like, we were one of the few Jamaicans I knew that lived in Connecticut, but a lot of my parents' friends who came to this country at the same time uh, set up in Brooklyn. So we'd right. come here on the weekend sometimes for block parties, which we didn't do in Connecticut. And um, at those block parties, I just saw like such diversity and so, like just there was so much flavor and fun here. I just fell in love with Brooklyn. And that was as, as, as a kid. And then I spent my teenage years sneaking in and out of New York because I just love the energy here, and I and I knew from a very early age this is where I want to be. That's where you want to be. So, how did you find your way to Underhill? Because even in 2006, now mm-hmm. we moved here in 1991, and we actually will talk at some point about how, you know, you could look out your window and um, see a car disappear mm-hmm. in yeah, before your 30 eyes. seconds yeah. before your eyes. <laughs> And mm-hmm. uh, PJ, you had a friend who lived on yeah, my, one of my best friends on Lincoln, lived Place, on Lincoln Place in '94. Yeah, because I used to live right around the corner on Vanderbilt and Bergen. And you could walk inside the buildings from Washington Ave to Underhill, mm-hmm. uh, which is what all the entrepreneurs who were selling on Washington Ave and uh, Underhill did. They could move very quickly. Um, I mean, it was a bit of a badlands in those days. It was. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a brother in a wheelchair, and he w- kept the stash. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, yeah. it was under his seat. Well, this, that was the, the thing about this area. I mean, I, I knew when I started looking um, for spaces, I was living in um, on Prospect. So I was in Crown Heights. I was in Fort Greene for years, got totally gentrified, moved to Crown Heights, bought a house there. And um, there was something about this neighborhood. It's a very stable neighborhood. People live here for 30, 40 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I, and I, my thing was, I'm creating a neighborhood spot, like a neighborhood watering hole. So I wanted to be in a neighborhood. And I, I knew at the time it was a little sketchy. But, you know, I was also reading New York Times a lot and <clears throat> realized they were putting a lot of money into the museum, botanical gardens, and this major library here. And I believe, to me, this is the cultural center of Brooklyn. So no matter how it looked, I knew that this is this artist center up here is right. a gold mine. And also, it's just a draw for people. This is There's a reason to come here. I mean, certainly there are no subway stations near me, so it is off the beaten track. And I did discover... Um, but you kind of sit midway between two. I do, but they're, again, they're, yeah, between two main drags. Right. Yeah, and often. I mean, people don't get off the subway and walk in your store. They don't walk, no, they don't come off at Underhill. Right. But, I mean, and, but, and these blocks are long. Yeah. Let's face it, these, this block is like three city blocks long. Mm -hmm. And a hill. (laughs) This one, yeah, and a hill. And steep. So, I mean, I found this place, though, because I spent a lot of time at at the library. I would read to my son's class and to the the pre-k classes at his school. And I was buying a lot of books, and I was like, oh, I can't, I can't afford to keep buying all these books. So I'm like, let me go to the library. So I was going to the library weekly, 
getting um, books, little, you know, uh, stories for the kids, because I always had, like, themes for a week. So I would go get some books, I would go read to them, and I'd return it to the library. And that's when I first saw Carl's Place. And to me, it was like one of those little restaurants where, you know, they cook and, you know, they when they run out of food, they close. You yeah. know, it was not, it, did, it wasn't serious. I could tell that they were not serious about what they were doing. Um, and then about the same time that I was walking back and forth, I was starting to look for spaces. So maybe this was 2005, right. maybe 2005. And anyway, so once I really got serious about looking, and I determined that I'm going to stay in, I want to be in Brooklyn. I don't want to cross a bridge to go to work. I want a, my spot to be here in Brooklyn because we need something like this. You yeah. Know? Um, so I have to I have to do a quick footnote because the important thing about this block of Underhill, which is the 200 block, is that the entrepreneurs on this block have always been majority women, not all, but majority women and majority minority Minorities. women. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of, I mean, there was a there was a, a beauty shop uh, which then became Bar Sapia. Mm -hmm. There's a laundromat, um, I think. There's so. a laundromat on the corner that was owned by uh, an African-American man who still comes to eat in your restaurant. <laughs> yes. And there's Cheryl. So there was, there was some history here that you've kind of you know, put your arms around in a really special way. Yeah, and a, and a, a, a black, a strong black community right here, of working people. Yeah, who needed someplace. lots of lots of MTA employees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. And so a lot of people that needed something. Although when we opened, I think they thought we were a little too slick, like it looked too um, high end. And I had to quick. I put in my uh, my um, elephant there. I, on the wall because I wanted people to know we didn't take ourselves that seriously. Right. You know, because it is a neighborhood spot and I didn't want, to, it wasn't about being exclusive. Well, I remember felt. the $2 coffee. Yeah. We were like, oh my God, $2. Yeah, but it's dope hey. $2 coffee. That's I right. I mean, we I, we get our coffee, it's it's toasted and ground and sent to us the, in a I day. Know. So I go through small batches and it's just amazing. But it's, and it's, it's now more than $2, it is, we have to tell you. Yeah, but it's, an, it's a testament to the fact that, you know, New Yorkers are very coffee savvy, and we're, we plan to be here for a long time. I mean, I had to convince a lot of people to try it. I mean, the, there's a bodega a few doors down. Sure, you can get a 50-cent 50, 50 cup of coffee. It's not Cheryl's. No. And it's not Irving Farms coffee. So, uh, but anyway, so when, uh, when I was looking, I heard through one of the realtors that Primrose was looking to rent the space yeah. and that's when I got in contact with her and that's when we started negotiating and it's uh, it's a relationship that has ebbed and flowed and grown over the years and Cheryl's is still here yeah um, except I, I just have to say another quick footnote on uh, on the day of uh, the Caribbean festival Labor Day uh, the day of jump up or the morning after jump up. Cheryl's is usually closed because Primrose, who is Jamaican, um, comes with her entire family and they cook. When you say yeah. jump up, do you mean Juve? Huh? Juve, Caribbean festival. But I actually didn't know they were doing that. It was the one day that I would give my staff off, like, let's just take a break. 
Because it's a I crazy did, time. I didn't know that they were setting up out there. Oh, that's funny. You know? That's funny. And she never mentioned it to me, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know what? It's it, There's room for everybody. It was, such exactly. a, it was such a neighborhood thing to do. Yeah. It really was. I believe was. they've been doing it for all the years that they yeah. had had the restaurant, so... Even when it was a dry cleaner. They would do... Wow. They used I to have the grills out there. I believe you that. Know. And now this year we won't be having that. No. So sad. Well, you might still be able to put the grill out. I don't know what the rules are today. but Yeah. So we've talked about how you got to the restaurant. Uh, how much did it cost you to open this place? What did you do? Well, how did I, you get the money? See, this is a thing. You know, I went, I had, you know, this, everything is business plan, business plan. I, I, I spent months working on a business plan, which, as we know, is all speculation because you ultimately don't know. But that's what they said banks needed to see right. what your projections were, how you'd scouted the neighborhood, done your research, and you know, estimated what you could make daily and all this. Again, pure specu- speculation. It can be, it can be a hit or miss uh, situation. You know. So anyway, um, I did the, all of that preparation. Took it to the banks. No, it was a solid fierce. No, thank you. We'll pass. <laughs> And this is because you're a woman. I'm a woman, and because you're a woman I of had color. Before, and oh my God, it's a restaurant. And on I'm top of not that. in partnership with you know ten other people. Um, but you know, if anything, you look at it, the risk was low. If I was going to go under, you usually typically go under in six months. Right. You know, so the risk is low, but they just were not willing to even listen. So um, luckily, we owned the house that we had at the time, and I was able to take a mortgage out part of it to open my restaurant and um, and so that's how I did it I did it and I didn't want partners because I find what I my experience with partners is there's always a conflict of work ethic or sensibility or just aesthetics and I didn't want anyone I mean I had enough dealing with Primrose telling her that it was going to be a gut renovation but if you're right. getting rent from me, I mean, this brick wall, she's still mad that I painted it white. I said it's a small space, and that dark brick just made it look like, you know, I needed yeah. light to bounce. Right. I needed the space to see, to have a, a light and life in it. So anyway, so this, hence, this is, yeah, gut renovation that we did here. And ultimately, you know, we added the garden. Um, I worked with the two really great architects. I mean, I laid it out myself. Everywhere I go, this is this is just the Jamaican in me, or maybe the way my parents raised me. We, we learned to do everything, you know, carpentry, whatever. And I was always drawing, sketching things out. Every space I looked at, I would draw it out to imagine it. Right. You know, the life in it. And um, we, from chores to building, we did everything. So I'm pretty, as some people say, cocky. I think confident. Is a better word. As you should. <laughs> you know, so uh, anyway, so, you know, I, I got their help to get all the planning done. We were ultimately in, Ilst- what was it, Interior Design Magazine. Yeah. And again, like I said, it really looked very slick. Yeah, because so, there used to be this really huge, ugly bar here. Yeah, when Primrose had it, it was like an, almost like an Irish bar. Yeah. Blonde bar, big bar. It was all disconnected. The door was over there. The fridge was over there. I mean, if you ordered something, I came in when I was, in, you know, talking with her. I watched her, like, take care of, like, three tables. And it was arduous. It was like there was, it, it took so long. 
to go. There was no flow. Right. It was like they, and because you don't understand the business, you can't walk. You should always have something in your hands as a waiter. You're either going to clear or you bring food, and you're you know there's always something in your hand. You never just go over there do one thing. Customer sits down, you're bringing water right away. Boom. You know, it's stuff like that. It's understanding the nature of the business. So, you got the space open, but we have not talked about your food. And your food is to die for. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> if, I, if, if, if I get very nostalgic, I've got to have jerk wings. Oh, yeah. I mean, Cheryl's jerk wings with a little salad on the side. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, oh. just that's, that's a throwback to my you know Caribbean culture my Jamaican heritage um, but I, I made a, a conscious decision to again this is all about Brooklyn cultural all these diversity and I wanted a place that you had different flavors on the same menu so I decided um, to call it Cheryl's Global Soul and I mean people just see they skip a global they just see soul and they're like where's the you know, where's the color greens and the mac and cheese and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, it's it's a take on soul food from around the world. And every culture has its soul food. And and the restaurant is really more about food that feeds a soul. So when you sit down, that food comes, there's like, there's flavors, aromas. It's like, it's it's all, it's like comfort. There's and like sake glazed salmon. Yeah. Mm. The, the sake, let me just tell you, I have customers that, and regulars that, when they travel, they could be way out of New York. But when they get back to New York, that's the f- they actually get here with their luggage because they come straight from the airport here first before they even go home to put their luggage away because they need the sake salmon or the bulgogi or I was going to say the bulgogi. Chicken. Yeah, my son, you know, to this day, if he's going to go to Cheryl's, it's going to be for the bulgogi. Yeah. You so know. that's the thing. It was just about. Creating great flavors. I mean, we have still a they solid burger. And you know. solid mac and cheese. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, it was from, taking from my experience, even in catering, where I, if I'm working with clients for like a week, I don't want to give them the same thing every day. And certainly my, my flavors are not um, superficial. We marinate, we roast, we really, it's about depth of flavor. And like with our jerk, um, we don't use some crazy rub. We make our jerk marinade. Yeah. And that means we toast and grind the dry spices. We put the onions, garlic, scallions, all the ginger, everything goes in there fresh. So it may not be, some people have this idea that jerk is somehow just one dimensionally hot. But it's, uh, it's, it's jerk because of the way they used to rub it with spices and then roast things even in the ground. Like the Samoans did, like the Hawaiians, they, it's like that deep pit, they would cover it in spices, marinate it, and then roast it. And so all of that flavor goes right in. Yeah. yeah. So last Christmas, I was working with, uh, with, a, with a woman who I had met actually doing uh, voter, trying to do voting work, getting people out to vote. And she runs a food kitchen, and her families come together at holidays for a big party. And she said to me, we just don't have enough really food. So I came into the restaurant and said, Cheryl, and you know, I walked out a couple of days later, ordered in huge, you know, big aluminum pans of mac and cheese. Um, 
which made a bunch of children really happy. But that's also a part of what you've always done. You always have given back to the community. And I don't know how many people you fed here on the side that, you, that we know came through and was hungry or stood at the door or... Well, you know, I, again, it's from that comes from my mother's um, way of, of being. She talks about her growing up in the hills of Jamaica and how, you know, there was always a pot on and always people would pass her house in the evening that her mother always had stuff for, for neighbors and friends who were just on their way and hungry. Yeah. So, of you know, she had 10 brothers and sisters and a house full of joy and, and sharing. And I think I'm, my brother's still like that. I'm like that. I mean, I, I couldn't, I could, certainly couldn't let someone go without when we have so much. So if you open the business in 2006, when do you think, when did you kind of look around and say, you know, I think we're making it? Well, so we opened in 2006. I don't know if I've ever, ever felt that, except a few nights where I've been like working the line and I'm in the kitchen and I'm just like, orders are coming in and you hear the dining room, you hear the glasses, you hear the laughter, you hear people just having a wonderful time. You hear that, it makes, it makes, it warms my heart so much. I mean, those nights felt great. Like we were just a well-oiled machine and putting out great food and it, you could hear it in the dining room how much people were loving it. And so, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, and the brunches where it's the noise level is so high you can't, you know, you can't hear yourself. And the line. The lines for brunch was crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Up and down the block. So that, I mean, that felt good. But in the day-to-day, you're still waiting to, to kind of break even. And then when you start breaking even, you're, you're happy. But there's always a, something breaking down. There's always repairs. There's, I mean, there's any number of things that can set you back. So... We're two years into being open, and in the restaurant business, there's this thing like if you're open for three years, you're you're no you know you're in the toddler stage, and that should be when things start getting better. But then we had the economy tank in 2008, and that wow. was just a nosedive. I mean, for everyone, you know, our uh, the people that we cater to, a lot of our corporate catering companies ac- accounts, and individuals that would throw lavish parties and things like that. All of a sudden, there was no money for that anymore. You know, all of a sudden, uh, people were like, well, I'm canceling my Christmas party, I'm canceling this, and you know, all that kind of stuff happened. So we were just back to surviving on our neighbors and right. in the immediate area, which is good, but you know, the catering is the gravy. So that was, uh, that took, that was a nosedive for us in 2008. And then again, we're chugging along, we're recovering, things are going well. And then, um, you know, and this was the, over years of incre- incremental increases in your rent. Yes. You know, and... And in the cost of food. And the cost of and food. The and the cost of labor. And, and everything. Yeah. So it's, it's like, you're still, and we're uh, also very much a food-based restaurant, even though we have a full bar. Um, you know, the cost, if you're selling a lot of booze, then you're making better money. But our stuff is about the food. So it's managing those food costs. So honestly, we were we were successful without being like ever so comfortably, you know, in the green. What's so, the what's the cocktail? It's the Brooklyn. The Brooklyn. Uh. That's such a good one. I mean, I it's early in the day, but I late these days I feel like I need one, especially with the convention just starting. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so so anyway, and then Sandy happened. Yeah. And right. that was another 
just devastating to the economy. I what mean, about it, 9/11? 9/11? 9/11 was two, that was before. Okay. That was yeah. So that was before yeah, this. Before this. Yeah. Okay. So it was before. I mean, the setbacks we've had have been the tanking of the economy in 2008, and then Sandy. So then, um, again, like getting ourselves back on track. And during Sandy, I, I mean, the, you remember the bridges? Everything was closed. Subways. Oh, I know. I would have to drive to the Bronx or wherever my guys were to get them to come work. And because it was, I think, curfews for a while too, I was getting them home. So my days were extremely long. Um, and I didn't want them to get stuck anywhere. So I was make, made myself available too to just get people where they needed to go. I didn't, the streets were very empty. I didn't want my waitresses walking home or my waiters walking home at night. So it was like, you know, I feel like we've always had to find a way to survive. And now here we are in COVID. I was gonna say, now we're in 2020 and, and I mean, it's, it's a whole different world. A whole different world. And I know you know. and I talked at the very beginning of the shutdown, which was March, early March, and at that point, you said you were 75, 80% down. Yeah, we're 80% down in business. Even doing the carryout. Yeah. I mean, the carryout is another whole animal because, again, you have, we have so, so many new um, costs, like packaging. Like we have, everything is single use, you know, the little souffle cups for the ketchup. Everything is now, and then we were doing um, a lot of stuff through Seamless and Grubhub, which took a percentage and still paying for advertising that didn't exist. So the numbers are coming out of my account. And still I had the bills that were already sitting right. there from, you know, that are due in 30 days or whatever. So, you know, I had to, uh, I mean, first when it happened, I was devastated and I had, I was just like in my bed for a day, just like balled up, you know, what am I gonna do? And my responsibility to my staff and to the purveyors who I owe money to and rent, what am I gonna do? So I, I spent one day just curled up, kind of, you know, woe is me. And I said, you know, we've been here before. What can I do to keep my doors open? And if they're saying we can do delivery and takeout, then that's what I have to do. So I called a friend and we immediately started scaling back the menu, scaling back our hours. Well, that's when you added the bowls. I had right. I had the bowls, Which but the was bowls different. Were, yeah, the global bowls were actually something I'd started before for happy hour. <clears throat> right. But it never really took because this neighborhood, there is no happy hour time really. Customers are, our regulars are coming home from work. They're getting right. they're off from work at five. We don't have all these office buildings which are letting out people at five to come drink. You know, so I was trying to get people to come in for like a $15 bowl and cocktails. So we had had it, we tried it a while back, but again, we don't have the foot traffic for that. But then when we this happened, it, it seemed like the ideal way to have this concise meal right. at a decent price that we could deliver easily. So it was just like pulling something that I already had in, my, in well, the back I know, of my mind. Well, I know people have said that. I don't know how you're going to accommodate it eventually because people love them. No, yeah. we're gonna, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue. I don't think that there's any quick and fast end to all of this. No. I think as winter goes and we don't know if we can even have people inside, or what the restrictions might be to have people inside. We may, we have to keep going with delivery and takeout. You know, we just have to keep that going. I think that's gonna be, and now we're just trying to add things to the menu or breakfast back to the menu. We open one weekend for brunch and 
it was great. I mean, people missed it. This, I mean, I had the pancakes and almost brought tears to my eyes because they were so damn good. <laughs> and I understand why people are missing it. So we're trying to figure out how we can get that part of our menu back in play because, again, we have a lot of people in the area that were work from home, moms and, and uh, nannies that come here all through the day, and they would be coming here for breakfast. Right. A lot of our regulars who are freelancers who would come and have their breakfast and early meetings here in the in the dining room, in the garden. So, you know, they've been missing that. And it was good part of our, um, good part of our money's made, you know? So I'm trying to get that back in place, knowing that, again, I'm, I mean, it's gonna be a lot of takeout too. And I, I mean, there was a while I didn't want to do takeout at all. I, I, I thought, how sacrilegious. I don't want that steak steaming in a container, mm-hmm. you know, or the muscles overcooking. Like I was just such a purist. I didn't like the idea of our food done as takeout. Right. But, you know, honestly, if people want it, what are you going to do? Yeah. You got to, you, you if know. If you want to stay afloat. If you, you want to stay, you have to. These are yeah. things you have to do. So, um, so um, I know that you've just gotten lots of support from the Small Business Administration and people <laughs> just knocking down your door okay. like they did before when you opened. To, uh, uh, to extend you all kinds of financial support. I mean, tell look, me about how wonderful that experience has been. You know, not. I, I see it not. <laughs> not. Exactly. Okay. I see it's so it's so weird because I feel like, you know, like we're just all little squirrels squirrels out here trying to get our nuts, right? You know? And um, we're we still don't have the support. Um, the PPP was supposed to help, a small business was supposed to be uh, you know, but we come across the same thing. They don't see us as viable somehow. Well, you also probably don't play golf with the right people. Exactly. I mean, there was a day when you could just make deals, yeah, in a social. And uh, you just talk to my banker. He's got you. We've never had that. As minority businesses, we've never had that. We've always had to prove above and beyond that we're going to pay you back. And we know historically that women small businesses pay back I think 90% of their loans yep like they're the least likely to to not pay back a loan and yet we still get denied by banks yet they will okay. yet they will they will they will um, take chances on white businesses with a flimsy business plan yeah, yeah but just with just a you know you know just a word yeah. just a word or not yeah you so I mean um, and I thought the Small Business Administration would do better. Yeah. Like, just knowing 14 years in business, we've sent you all our information. They sent me back some polite thing that they weren't able to get all the information they needed, but no one reached out to me directly right. to say what were the things that were missing. And then I haven't been able to reach anybody there, and I think right. that's and just... They, and they work through their own banking relationships. Right. I mean, the SBA doesn't write you a check. They. The bank wrecks you a check, exactly. and I that's mean, what a lot of people don't understand mm-hmm. about how SBA loans work. You have to have a relationship with a banker, so the racism, the institutional systematic denials just continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the, what was shocking to me about this whole thing is that, you know, Small businesses are the backbone of so many neighborhoods, so many communities. Oh, well, a bunch of jobs here. A bunch of jobs here, and local jobs, too. Yeah. 
So, and even I, I still go to my favorite little places here. If I go to the hardware store, it's right here. I don't go to Lowe's or Home Depot if I can get things to keep all of these businesses up and running. Even sometimes I'm out all day, I'll get something from a restaurant to bring to my guys because I feel like they, they also need our dollars. And my guys are eating our food every day. They may as well get a treat. Um, but uh, I don't know what to do. I'm... I'm I, one of the reasons I wanted a loan was because I have this ideas of um, marketing some of the things that we do. Yeah. You know, some of our sauces and spices, building on a brand. And, and there's no one even to discuss that with. You know, certainly part of it would have been maybe a little facelift cosmetically here since we're 14 years in. Also doing things that for COVID kind of situations... <gasps> updating some of the bathroom stuff so it's hands-free the things that tangible things i wanted to do to address the issues that we're having right now with um sanitizing everything with making it safe for people to come and eat here so those were things i wanted to directly do but also to to say yeah i mean to say like i have a plan for generating beyond our doors right and and like I said, no one to talk to that about. So in 2006, we talked a little bit about how the neighborhood was a little sketchy. There was some risk involved uh, with who was here. And uh, I guess part of, part of what I'm feeling now is the pressure, the gentrification, the pressure, uh, the fact that, that the neighborhood has changed, but has that been good for your business? Well, you know, I've, since I've lived in New York, I've, in, in Brooklyn in particular, I've seen neighborhoods change. Um, I think I've been, I'm a place that I opened knowing that I embrace all of Brooklyn, all of the demographics. And so, I mean, it was sketchy when I moved here and then the, the boys are out still hanging outside. Yep. And, but you know what, as we know, those guys outside doing their business, uh, are also eyes and ears yeah. for our business. They Nothing's going to go down in front of my restaurant while you have the local guys hanging out. That's right. So, And that's something that a lot of these new people moving in, gentrifying our neighborhood, do not understand. It's like, look your neighbors in the face. Get to know your neighbors. They're the ones going to be knocking on your door saying, hey, you left your lights on in your car. You know, all that kind of right. stuff, they don't get it that they're the reason they can walk safely. Instead of like skittishly walking past some of these guys, how about saying hello, good evening? You know, I found that in Fort Greene. I mean, what's the danger of two women sitting on their stoop with a baby and you're skittishly walking past, not just making eye contact and saying, good afternoon, good evening? You know, it's like... It's a thing about being seen. It's a, yeah. And like, there's a, there's a big misunderstanding regardless of, you know, gender, race relations, and this and that, whatever, but acknowledging someone makes a humongous makes a difference. Huge. No matter well, what they do, even if what they're doing is illegal. Yeah. You know, it's like, look, I see you, you yes, see me. Yeah. That's right. All and right, and oh, by the way, you're a real live human being. Yeah. You're a real person. But that's, so that's what I'm saying. So when I moved over here, I was not, nothing was scary about this because it's Brooklyn. It's, yeah. I love it. I love yeah. the diversity. I love that I was gonna be able to offer something that wasn't here. Like our, my whole thing was I wanted to be that place, like Cheers, where everybody knows your name. People walk in, you see that all the time. Everybody's like, hey, Jean, you know, it's like. Yeah. Um, hey, Mary, Marie, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's important. 
and um, also all the conversations from the multi-generational, the multi-ethnic, all the people sitting around in my dining room. I mean, I, I heard some amazing conversations. And, and, you, you, know, and you, have, you have some names, some well-known names that are regulars. Oh, absolutely. Stacey you know. Ann Chin is one of them. We have like, we have from actors to writers, the women that wrote Sex in the City were here all the time. Mm. With, they, they would have their work meetings and breakfast here. And then you have all the young artists who are writing their books, and then you don't, I didn't even realize until I see their books, you know, on the national bestseller list. Um, that so they wrote it in your they, dining room. In my room. dining room. Right. And they wrote their ideas for whatever screenplay, or, I mean, it's just, you know, but, but that's the thing. It's just, I wanted to create a spot where people felt comfortable. And even single people, like I have the TV on all the time with TCM, but it was so that, any any woman or guy sitting in here coming with a book to sit alone and eat felt totally comfortable it wasn't like table for one and we're like oh well we don't know no no please come in you know this is your this is your spot that's right and this is uh, going to continue to be your spot yes so is. we can we can say that the sense of community will continue yes Cheryl will survive i will one way or the other and I so will ultimately the, have right, mine. and that and that you if you if you do something different, it's going to be because you choose to do that. Yes, and that's an exciting place to be, for better or worse. Yes, notwithstanding how hard you work to be here. Well, you know, one thing I've told my son is, the tree that bends in the breeze is the one that's going to survive. So you have to be. You have to be flexible. You have to go with the breeze and then come back. Because the, the tree that stands rigid, yeah, immovable. You lose it. You lose it. Thank you. The usable past and the usable present, all in one fell swoop. Yes. Cheryl's global soul. Thank you, Cheryl Smith. Um, and thank you, PJ Ryan. Thank you, Marie. Thank you, And PJ. this is uh, Marie Nahikian, your host. Thank you. Doing things together. The Usable Pass is sponsored in part by the Greater New York Arts Development Fund of the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, administered by Brooklyn Arts Council, BAC.